0: Hi, and welcome back to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And my guest today is the Power of the Dog director, the great Jane Campion. My chat with Jane's can be followed by a chat with her editor, Peter Skibaris. And support for this podcast in the following message comes from MGM Studios, a United Artists Releasings, No Time to Die. Daniel Craig concludes his five-film portrayal of James Bond, No Time to Die. He's joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents. Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. You can watch No Time to Die everywhere you rent movies for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. One thing that jumped out at me last night when I was reading uh, about Power of the Dog was your collaboration with cinematographer Ari Wagner. I guess this is the first time you've worked with her, at least on a narrative project, but also that... You worked with her rather intensely
1: for a year before cameras even even rolled, no? Yeah, well, I first met Ari through my um, assistant friend, Paola Morabito. And they were doing an ad together in New Zealand in Glenorchy, near where I live. And I was raving about how amazing she was. And I went, oh, mm, good to meet, you know. <laughs> and uh, then I did an ad and I chose Ari to work with. And we didn't have a lot of time to prepare or anything. But, you know, we just like tested the water and I really liked her. So with this project, because uh, there's so many guys involved in it, I, I was starting to imagine a set that, you know, for the first time in my life would be like more men than women and it seemed like wrong way to go. And I had the idea of deliberately choosing a female DOP. And Ari was the very first person that came to mind. DOP had to come from uh, Australia or New Zealand for co-production reasons. And um, I'd seen some of Ari's short films that she'd done, which was startlingly elegant, like so beautiful. And I also love that she worked so much in the short film form. She had also done one feature that was notable, which was Lady Macbeth. Yeah, I just approached her and said, Ari what do you think? Do you like the story? The thing is that if you want to do it, the offers only open if you are prepared to do a lot, a lot, a lot of pre-production.
0: I'm wondering about that. I, I know you're a big, rigorous planner. I, I followed your career for a while, but I'm, I'm curious specifically to this film, why so much in terms, in, in particular, in terms of the photography, being able to work with a cinematographer for so long ahead of time, beyond what you normally
1: do? Having done the television, I became, um, really in love with collaboration like I did collaborate with another director and I collaborated with another writer and I just didn't want the loneliness of the long distance runner thing that you have as a director and film where your DOP turns up with all the machines and all the gear and the kit and they can't seem to make any of the pre-production and You have to choose a lot of the locations by yourself. And it just felt like, no, 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 no. I want someone who really is committed like I am to choosing everything together and growing together into the story. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't even know what that really meant. And I still don't know quite what it really means. But Ari didn't do any other projects for a year, even though we weren't always working on it. But we were lending our psyches i guess to it the whole time and thinking about it and figuring it out and the times that we did spend together was often location wrecking or looking at films that we thought were amazing or planning all sorts of things that we thought we could retrain our brains for you know we had the idea of working with aleandro and Ruta's, you know amazing dop who does those incredibly choreographed shots Oh,
0: uh, chivo, Emanuel Lembetsky. Yeah. Exactly.
1: We thought let's get chivo and have our own <laughs> little, you know, our own a little training session. It'd be so great. But we didn't actually end up doing that. But it was in our mind that we wanted to dance. We wanted to dance, and then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we sort of changed our minds. Maybe we're not going to be dancing. <laughs> in the end, there is a kind of training of the brain for it and rehearsing of your brain for it, where you know, often the rehearsals are taking the form of storyboarding a lot of storyboarding. I draw a lot for um every scene it's like doing the the burden of imagining and I go again and again and again and both Ari and I were doing that imagining together quite often that really I think helped us figure it out I still felt like you know we've got the time but I still don't know what to do you know (laughs) I still felt like I, you know, I remember just freaking out before we started shooting and beautiful Phil Jones is my first and not enough can be said about the importance of a brilliant first. Uh, And, you know, there's no Academy Award for it, but it's actually incredibly important to have your set run well. And to have it built around what's important to you. Yeah. He always thinks I'm incredibly good at people managing and, um, like, that, that that I'm a, uh, you know, sort of black belt in it. <laughs> and, um, I, don't even, I don't even know what he's talking about. He says, oh, you, you just know how, like, someone gets argumentative. I don't argue. I just say, yeah, we'll try it, you know. <laughs> let's do it. Don't let's talk. Let's just try it, you know, or something like that. And, it, I mean, that is, I don't think, anything but a good idea. But I remember saying to him, oh, how are we going to do this? We've got these cattle, we've got so many elements that are really difficult. And he said, "Well, Jane, we're gonna put some stuff in front of the camera like we always do, and shoot it." <laughs> <We> <laughs> and, there is, and there is that feeling when you arrive on the set, and you are, um, you know, you're, you're nervous, you're anxious. You've got your pieces of paper, with your little storyboards on it, and you start to set up the first one. And then some sort of whoosh of excitement comes through you, and you go, you start, you say, "Oh, I know what to do." this person mm-hmm. should be there, I know that they're too close, move that away over there, you know, fix that, blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, Ari and I were, you know, like one brain kind of working through this stuff and suddenly you feel the work and the thinking that you've done just come naturally into play and you're off. And, I mean, we had rules but we also broke our rules. You got to first, first have the rules to break them, right? <laughs> <laughs> we really like what Harry Savini said in one of his um, YouTube videos about just economy. means, you know, like just, you know, shoot the shot and let it go as long as you can make it go and then do the next one, you know?
0: <laughs> I have to imagine um, a big a big ingredient here was figuring out the landscape itself, because obviously this is a way out the exteriors are always so important to your movies, but obviously one thing I loved about this is it does hark back to some of my favorite Westerns in the sense that the landscape is part of character. It's part of, it's part of the story you want to tell. I'm wondering the landscape that you chose and the backdrop you chose, wondering how you landed there, but I'm also wondering, was that a big part of yours and Ari's processes is a lot of scouting and trying to find what was, was going to work there.
1: Yeah. The, the process was complicated by the fact that we were really supposed to be in Montana. And, yes. um, you know, when it was proposed that we might shoot in New Zealand because it would be more financially viable, I mean, I really had a tantrum. Like, you know, what the hell? You know, I've finally got my American movie. <laughs> I, I want to be in Montana. Are you kidding me? This is disgusting. What a terrible idea. And they said, like, calm down, calm down. Look, just please do a scout in New Zealand, see what's there. Then we go to Montana, we look at, we do the research there we look at the real places um that Thomas Savage was writing about and you know we'll take it from there and so I was like <sighs> grumpy about it as hell and you know there's sometimes a little bit of acting that goes on here that you have to show you're not happy <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make me do in the cut over here <laughs> no exactly <sighs> Yeah, anyway, they is actually me too because I'm one of the producers. So um, anyway, I had the scout and pretty quickly he took me to this location, which um, he really knew about and had uh, always looking for something spicy and great to do there, um, which is the Hawkton Range in the middle of the South Island, the bottom of the South Island, the Ida Valley, very, very deserted area. But there is a painting, a painter called Graham Sidney Whose work is very beautiful and very landscape heavy, and you know, dripping with a kind of deep love and nostalgia for the area. That I, whose work I was familiar with, and actually had seen a painting of this very, this very place. And when I saw it, I went, "Ah, oh, that's Graham Sydney's. This is a Graham Sydney landscape." Okay, and. Um, who didn't live far away and that invited me over. And, you know, it was like Lord of the, Lord of the area. <laughs> like you want locations, I'll tell you where to go. You know? <laughs> um, so that was pretty quickly. Um, I immediately felt in my body and I feel everything important in my body, you know, as I not like, think it, I just feel it. I went like, Oh my God, this is unique. This is special. I'm really feeling it. It's three sixty degrees, totally brilliant. And the hill's, the hills are gorgeous, they're muscular, they're muscular. And, you know, the way that they were lit with the shadows and I felt like we could find a way to f- put a dog in there that we needed to do. And there was actually even um, a river. It wasn't actually deep enough or big enough to do the work we were, you know, needing to do with um, Ben in his sacred place. But there there was all the qualities and the features that we could kind of um, uh, zip together when we needed to. So. When I went to Montana um, and actually saw the place where Thomas Savage grew up in Beaverhead County near Dillon, um, I mean, I was very, very excited that eve- that morning when we were driving there thinking, I'm going to find the location. I said, we're going to be there. The house is going to be there. The barn is going to be there. This is where it's going to be like, you know, it's beautiful uh, ritual, like actually working on the very place he lived. And I got there and I went, oh, okay. Okay, the barn's good, but the landscape is scrappy. There's there's no visible features that are really talking to me here. The, the, the hill range, or the mountain range is a long way away. Um, and it just didn't have the same um, presence. And we went and then visited the house because the house had been removed and I had my mind thinking we could put it back. Mm-hmm. But the house itself was a kit home that was sort of doubled or quadrupled in size and not very elegant or beautiful or interesting, not the way that I don't think, you know, I think was described in the book or needed to be like this really wealthy family coming out west and building their dream, you know, ranch really right. with, their, with their little preppy boys. And then um, their preppy boys became real cowboys, you know, real cowhands. So yeah that was that was an adventure and that was a story and then it was like everywhere we went including the Hawkton Range was like the most difficult place to build in New Zealand the highest wind factor wow. in the country and everything that we built had to be reinforced and then the building of it was super hard but you know I was working with Grant Major who's like this quiet giant giant genius He's not, like, big, but he's just big in, in his brain and stature and quiet and gentle, as you could find, who was, you know, just quietly put it together and said, you know, this is what we're going to do. Of course, it was wildly over budget. And they'll say, reduce it, reduce it, take it out. And they just say, well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I mean, we did reduce the house size, but it was it's very hard to figure those things out. I mean, we are in the paddock. Snow was coming down and it was like unseasonable. And we were trying to pace out what we felt would be the right size for the rooms, whether we ought to be reducing or what we were supposed to be doing. And then when we actually saw the building on set being built, we went like, oh, this is massive. This is too big. Let's reduce the studio build.
0: But there's a wonder. I, it, and it's interesting
1: that. to hear you talk about that in, in, in the initial
0: trip to Montana, because one thing that instantly struck me was um, not just the amazing work that Grant did, but this very distinct relationship of those exteriors and that interior, you know, that sense of what the outside is going to feel like inside and how these spaces relate to both the interior and exterior spaces as they relate to character. And so, it, you know, listening to you talk about that, it almost seems like natural then, therefore, to be able to I mean, I know the interiors are on stages, but to to be able to kind of create with him against this landscape is, is actually probably ended up being a great gift in that sense.
1: Well, it is. I think it's like a bit of a mythic landscape too because it's not quite, I mean, people from Montana believed it was Montana. So, I mean, I guess the world isn't as unique as you may believe. There's all sorts mm-hmm. of places where you can, especially in New Zealand, which is a chameleon of a landscape, right. can sort of fake anything, even Switzerland. Um, but, I mean, I, I felt that we just had this iconic backdrop of hills and we had a nice little stand of trees and we had some beautiful rivers. I just kept going over them in my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, you know. That's the little cathedral, little church, little sacred church where we can review and think about his old lover, Bronco Henry. Um, So the landscapes and things, I, I mean, I don't ever think of them as a character. People always say that, yeah. and you said it too. I, I never think of them as a character. I think of them as landscapes.
0: I was saying, think of them in terms of character, though. The character is defined by these spaces.
1: I don't even think that myself. (laughs) I mean, I I certainly understand that a lot of people must do because they talk about it. But um, I think of how I relate to places. Mm -hmm. And places um, have such a vibration for me that, um, you know, some places I feel happy and safe and or uneasy and or whatever, you know, they change the way I think and feel. Um, so I think they're incredibly powerful or important, but um, and I think you know, I guess landscape is a powerful element. I would say, you know,
0: yeah, in the Wonder- in the story, you're talking about feeling those vibrations off something. I'm wondering one of the spaces that was just remarkable to me and was the barn, as it relates to to Phil's character and then those scenes with Peter.
1: Oh, don't we all want a cubby house barn like that? I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I, I'm just wondering because I, I imagine that's
0: even thinking of that space and then thinking about that, and I, once again, this is my obviously this is a, I do think of it a, in terms of that character and his backstory. Well, his character and his backstory—a place where he could be—and it's and and then the way that you're framing it and building it against that that backdrop and also feeling like a little private. It's it's open but private. It just there, it I even just thinking about it, I get a little emotional as it relates to that character.
1: It's dark. It's a little churchy mm-hmm. in a kind of way, but it's also so lovingly um, decked out by the set dresses mm-hmm. with everything a guy could want um, play, play field for making stuff. And then there's Bronco Henry shrine in there, yeah. um, which is not, wasn't in the book, but I, it was helpful of something I created because I thought it would be really helpful to, establish a place for him to be thought about Mm -hmm. another reason why phil likes to be in the barn um and i you know it's like that thing as you say you've got the dark inside which feels all the darker for the bright outside Mm -hmm. uh i do i do really love that barn it's a great uh piece of sculpture for an and dark quality for you know the story um, and and how it was possible to use and it was like one of the few elements that was completely could be completely filmed like the interior of that set on um the location we only had the cowboys kitchen and then part of the real kitchen or the cowboys sorry dining room and you know we had we had sight lines and windows so we could connect. Um, the outside and the inside, which is always really helpful to sell that location on set really is there. Um, and, and I must say the actors, when they arrived on set and saw it for the first time, I mean, Benedict was just aching to get into his barn and to, you know, make sure things were where they were and, and feel like they were his. Um, they were they were astonished at the detail that uh, Grant Major and his team brought to the, the set, um, how beautifully done it was and i mean i i was always like misanxious, you know like oh i know that's all very well it's all beautifully done but how are you gonna age it now you know <laughs> um and the aging and the you know the paint work and the team that they had they they really did do it they really got there with it. they're, they're amazing yeah
0: we'll age it don't worry that's we didn't forget that step
1: <laughs> no i know but you know there's good aging and bad aging you, yeah, you know like I'm, I'm really it. fussy about it
0: I read a bunch of interviews here um, and th- the way that you work with actors and the discovering of these parts. And there's some amazing stories with this one and uh, read and listeners can, and can Google some of the things that some of the actors have said about this and the results are obviously great performances and that's the goal. Um, but I wonder, <laughs> but I wonder even beyond that. And I'm thinking of you in terms of how this manifests itself as you as a visual storyteller, you know, I think maybe the easiest example here is is Phil, you know, this character who's torn apart inside. And it's always remarkable to me, in particular this film, but all of your films, how that's externalized in yeah. such subtle but restrained ways, but so clear. Do you know, in ways that just smoking a cigarette, or 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 that way he handles the rope, or all the the, the saddle. And I'm curious. It, 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 that's that's filmmaking, the externalizing of the internal. But I'm wondering how much beyond the great performances for you in this process of discovering with actors, you're also finding those gestures, those moments that you can do the type of storytelling you did in this film.
1: Of course, you're just speaking like a director to me, you know, so, you know, cause that is the, that is the art of it that during that beautiful precious time in rehearsal, you're, you're really watching them very carefully for anything that you might want to include um, that you hadn't thought about yet because it's just, they just turned up and, if if they were just turning up to the first day of actual shooting, what a loss really that you don't get a chance to befriend each other and to get comfortable and relaxed and, you know, struggle together to get the best for it. I mean, for example, when in the rehearsal room that we had, there was some hula hoops um, and um, Cody picked one up and he started hula hooping, you know, and I went, oh, my God, that's great let's let's put it in the movie let's let's have peter hula hooping of course he hula hoops you know did hula hoops exist yeah they did exist okay good <laughs> research <laughs> i mean so there's things like that and i mean really ben looked after the smoking himself you know like that was a um a custom for phil and the story was that he could Roll a cigarette in one hand, and he was obsessed with doing that or trying to do it. And we're looking up YouTube videos on how to do that <laughs> a lot. Um, and he could do it in the end, but we'd have to, you know, spent ten minutes of the movie watching him do it. So you know that we didn't actually see him do it from start to finish. But it was that kind of um, understanding of Phil and his, you know, how he liked to do things uh, that. Both Ben and I really loved. Um, And, you know, of course, came from Thomas Savage as well. And I, you know, I think the, I don't know, I mean, I had a bunch of really good actors. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. And then it's just like observing them and making sure you remember the things you saw them do that were good, that you include them in the film if better things don't turn up. Actually, write them down because it's easy to forget you know, like the good things that happen in rehearsals, write them down um, and, and remind people.
0: And those gestures is just, it's just, especially for a film like this, it's so, it's so much more powerful to feel the character and to watch it and that, and, and, to kind of as an audience member just to get a sense of who this person and the way that you know the people that you're closest to you know in that way that when they bite their lip or they do something you know who they are and I feel that way with your characters especially this one
1: yeah no I think they really all did beautiful stuff with their I guess habitual behaviors I mean we also did bring in some unusual support people or in the rehearsal process the very first day with the two brothers I got this choreographer called Ross McCormack from Mm -hmm. New Zealand who works beautifully with movement, not just in dance, but observed movement in men and people and women. I talked to him and said, will you please teach these brothers a waltz? Because I want to work, let them feel each other. And we're going to have to get uh, Ben to be the dominant one. And Jesse's going to have to learn to listen. Because that's their relationship, but then in this story, you know, was the the other thing is that Jesse's had a, a little a little much of listening over the years, and he's he's wanting out. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, Jesse would peel away and just sit down, so that the the dominator had no one to dominate. And that's a very lonely feeling <laughs> <laughs> for that dynamic. And, you know, an alpha needs to be the boss of someone, you know? Right. Right.
0: Obviously this film has a very clear vision in a sense of where it's going. I, I was talking to Peter, your editor this morning, but there's a mix here of a foreboding, right? And a sense, and also where the story is inevitably going to go. So you're also planting in all of, you know, the things that Cody is doing. And then also, this that this restraint that we're talking about and this restraint in the storytelling in terms of how we were relating to what's going on in the character. I'm wondering, is as as you and Peter are working and you're getting towards that third act and there is some intimacy happening between uh, Peter and Phil, the story is also moving towards something that is very foreboding. I'm wondering, was this a hard even though I'm sure you had a sense of where you wanted to go, was finding that mix and how to get there and land it
1: hard? It was difficult, and well, let's put it this way. We had to be thoughtful about it all the time, mm-hmm. um, where what we were feeling from the characters and whether, um you know how much we wanted to foreshadow what was about to happen, how much the mystery of the film was important, you know, like and and letting things be unsaid, letting people wonder. um but it also it has to be authentic you know, in the sense that you're not just being mysterious for the sake of it. I mean, there's, a, there's that wonderful scene that I love um, from the book in the haymaking when Peter uh, is there with a whole lot of blokes and he's walking a gauntlet, more or less, um, up to, to see the birds and his walk and his whole body language is on display and the men start to whistle at him. He's being called out as effeminate, you know, at that in that moment and Phil's watching as well. and when Phil later calls him over and starts to reverse his what apparently was a sort of full- scale hatred of him, including chasing him naked. you know he, he starts to say, let's be friends. And I mean, I love that moment because you really this is so ambiguous. you just do not know what uh, Phil's intentions are at that point. and you don't know what Peters are either, you know, like if he's believing him, he's playing along. And then there's uh, Rose who's watching the whole thing and, you know, she knows exactly what she's very concerned because, you know, it's like Phil seems to have found, you know, the last nail in her coffin, which is to steal her son off her um, in terms of what's been giving her comfort on the ranch and what will drive her to alcohol or to craziness or whatever, you know, faster would be to kind of kidnap her son, you know. Mm. make a make a mate of him and tell him now you know you're going to become one of the blokes and you know you, you don't want your mummy you know telling you what to do that was where the ambiguity really begins and people still ask me like what 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 was he meaning what was he wanting to do and you know like it's all alive in that moment I don't think you can know and then what as things transpire in the story you you begin to see that maybe they didn't even know. And, you know, like they're working it out as they go along. Like I think Phil's wondering, is, is this boy going to be too irritating to bear or what the hell? And now he can see the, the dog on the the hill. Who is he, you know? He's sharper than I thought. Yeah, But I think there's a feeling even that maybe Phil might push him off a cliff, you know? I mean, I don't want to say too much because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, why not? It would get rid of him. and get rid of rose too
0: thank you so much we need to wrap up but i really appreciate your time and and congratulations on this film thanks chris
1: that's been great
0: now my interview with power of the dog editor peter scabaris the idea of an editor being on during production isn't, you know, that's becoming fairly common. But I, I am wondering about your role in, in the conversations you were having with Jane as you're shooting this. Is she not a director who's liking to see something assembled and see how see what she has to some degree it inform her production?
2: Not during the shoot, but we had that COVID break, which was really unusual, which was two and a half months. So in that time, we... I, I put the whole assembly together, which is really unusual to do in the middle of a shoot, um, and then dropped in black slugs with uh, title cards for every scene um, that was missing, which was a terrifying way to watch the first assembly. But it did inform a whole day and a half, maybe two days of pickups at the start of the next shoot. What type of stuff? A lot of the close-ups of the rope, uh, a lot of the textural stuff, was in there, the really kind of tactile stuff with the saddle, we could just feel in those scenes, especially towards the end in the barn and and that saddle scene where we kind of um, really get into Phil's a longing in, in a life that we were missing a really deep layer. Yeah, because it's so nuanced and there's so much, so much detail in the performances, especially, I mean, in everyone's, but Benedict's in particular, um, just because he had some of those moments where, like, on his face in close up, quite you know lengthy shots, it just allowed Benedict to really, really go. There was no, there was no cut. It just was a long reel of freedom. There was coverage. I mean, some scenes there was a ton of coverage, like the scene where Peter walks through the men in the campsite and they're all whistling and kind of calling out names. There was coverage of all the extras who'd been growing their beards for like six months a bunch of rough rough kiwi lads uh growing their beards for a really long time and they look great and you know the costumes are great there and there's a lot of production value but that was a scene that just got better and better as we actually reduced and it was just about being economical and deciding that that scene plays best when it's just one wide that pans and then pans back. So it was kind of, there was a lot of decisions like that throughout, you know, Jane knows framing so well. Like she gets so much in one frame that you don't need to cut as often as you might.
0: I have to imagine there was kind of big picture in terms of how this film arcs and its tone that was something that had to have been I don't want to say struggle because the film is fantastic but I mean maybe all good filmmaking is a struggle and it's in the footage but I have to imagine that that was something that you guys were working on for in that year quite a bit right
2: oh absolutely yeah it was it was a yeah it was a tough film to make i mean there was so many layers to it you know the film's kind of broken up into five acts in a sense which is quite you know bold and unusual so just getting that working like the the uh the chapter cards that they were they weren't in the script that was something we kind of found you kind of just you could feel like when the cards went in that you could just accept that you were going to be taken somewhere else whereas the first time we played it through without those you kind of felt like oh wow this is a this could be quite hard for an audience to jump to this new place i i feel like the first time we watched it through with chapter cards was the first time i went oh, okay this structure's like working
0: and what about that idea of a building sense of, I guess foreboding might be the best word. There's something here that's a little bit of a restraint in terms of a character study, but there are times where I have to imagine that balance, right, of Of a sense of foreboding. That's something that you have to play with where it is and where it's not.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, that was really a balancing act, planning those kind of clues, I guess, to, as to when Pete's final act comes in that you could trace back and go oh wow okay like you know we've been actually told about that a bunch of times but in a really subtle kind of way so that was tricky that was a tricky balance because you could go too far quite easily and and give it away too early the film used to start with the castration scene that was actually the opening scene of the movie you know starts are always hard and you always need to get moving and that scene went with a bunch of other stuff that was kind of repeated in the bathtub scene with uh george and phil so it was kind of a similar conversation so we kind of took that out and and realized really quickly as one of the maybe one of the first restructures we did was that could go right before Peter arrives to build that sense of foreboding and like this. OK, this is uh, this is going to be where the where the real um, clash comes. <laughs> that really amped up that that section in a, in a big way.
0: It's a beautiful, beautiful scene, um, where Phil and Peter are, there's, there's the, I guess the moment of the greatest intimacy between them in a shared moment. Um, I'm wondering about that scene specifically cause it's a beautiful piece of work, but I'm also wondering about getting to the point that you could have that scene, you know, cause I have to imagine there's gotta, there's gotta be a layering in that scene, not only how you're going to cut it, but how you're going to get to that, um, is something that's consciously, i wonder if you could just talk about that, both the scene, but also leading up to that and, and, and setting it up.
2: Yeah, I'll start with leading up to it. I mean, there was a, like, there was actually, there's actually two scenes in the previous chapter that Phil and Pete actually came really close together in a scene. There was one on a stairway uh, where Pete was taking some furniture from with George from Phil's room to his own room and Phil kind of, had a little bit of a blow up on the stairs and and there's another there's an ending of a scene where they came really close together which was the end of chapter four where Pete sees him in the river bathing in his sacred place Uh, and that used to continue and Benedict actually well Phil used to actually catch Peter and really like kind of give him a serve yell at him and and it was kind of amazing it was like (laughs) <laughs> it was like Phil running naked through, like, the bushes and catching Peter in, like, a dried-up river.
0: <laughs> and you can see how he leaves that river. You can see the head of steam Yeah, yeah.
2: There's, there's some rage there. There's some rage there. Yeah, and that continued, but it was kind of interesting. Every, every time we had these moments where where they came together, it kind of it really sucked the power out of everything that came after it. Because you had a resolve, the tension just kind of really really came down you had to kind of build up again so like those those two scenes were kind of sacrifices to get to that final act essentially with with so much tension still in the air so when he calls him over at the campsite it's kind of like you're like okay they haven't talked they haven't this hasn't been resolved um whereas with the resolve it kind of felt like you really had to build up from the start all over again so that That was a huge, that was a huge cut in my mind. I think that really was like, really gave the last chapter so much power that you hadn't really brought them close together yet. They hadn't actually been, I mean, I think the closest is when Phil tells the horse, the horseman or the cowboys around him to go and kind of, you know, um, ride around Peter and kind of scare him on his first day on the ranch uh, when he first arrives and that's kind of the closest they really are. Um, and when he first arrives and they're just staring at each other across the, across the field. So it's kind of like, yeah, keeping them apart until they, till Phil started to bring him in and slowly, but there is so much going on between them, like the power dynamics and the, the way we handle those scenes in the barn, the first scene in the barn and the one in the haystack like that was really carefully 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 crafted and and Pete's Pete is such an a uh, kind of disarming character for Phil you <laughs> really he really constantly um surprises him playing with the way we we delivered that was took took a long time to get right i remember there was one the first barn scene where his, t- his Pete's on the saddle and he's kind of Telling him, you know, uh, don't let your ma make a sissy of you and, uh, you know, being really like, I guess he's trying to teach him how to be a man. But also with like, you know, for us as the audience on the first viewing, you really have no idea what his motives are. Is he going to like, you know, push him off a cliff or <laughs> is he going to, you know, because he's really kind of trying to steal the boy away from Rose just to. And
0: you have to have a little hope, right? You have, I mean, this is, this is part of it is that you have to have a little hope that maybe this boy's presence is going to bring out some humanity, some, some, right? Something else. Because like the reality is if you're too much like in the back, he's plotting, (laughs) you know, how to like save his mother and stuff. That's the part that's so amazing to me is because I do, and even rewatching it and knowing, and knowing what happens to Phil, even rewatching it, I do have a sense of hope.
2: Well, there is a warming there, yeah, yeah, totally, and that was that that was the trick, like, because you could push it too far in one direction or another. the The work in that regard, to me, starts in the campsite where Phil calls him over, and we we purposely played that scene quite wide on Phil. Pete's quite close, and he's kind of like um, you know the eager kid, kind of confused as why he's there, but maybe like. You know, a little bit excited. the The big guy on the ranch is kind of paying me some attention. Uh, you know, is this about what happened before? is but he's being quite charming. So, but we really wanted the audience to be kind of a little could s- see them both in the same frame while he's delivering his uh, charming kind of <laughs> um, introduction. You know, and just just to be able to sit back and go what what's going on, like, you know, is this, what is, is this this or is this this? What's kind of, it's kind of the ambiguity that was really the tension there. And when, when we were in too tight, it kind of, it it didn't allow you just to kind of observe and, 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 and ask those questions. You kind of just went with it because, you know, the performances are so great and they just kind of suck you in. So you kind of like, you kind of needed to step back a little and just, observe and wonder what the motives were
0: (laughs) making sure there's a little that there's emotion there but that that there's the ambiguity
2: remains right is that absolutely yeah and balancing those two things yeah
0: that's really hard because emotion is so thick and so you know these performances, and and Jane as a a director are so on point that <laughs> it sears it, it sears right through the top. You know.
2: Yeah, and Jane's so instinctual. A lot of a lot of what we were doing was, you know, I kind of like to work in a way where I can. We don't talk about things too much. Like we don't over overcomplicate things um, beforehand. We kind of we kind of talk a little we work and then we feel it and then we make sense of it <laughs> in a way because you, yeah with with that kind of material like it really is all about like are we hitting the feeling that feeling of ambiguity that feeling of is there a bit of love here is there you know is there danger here it, it's kind of such a tricky balance that it really needs to be instinctual and felt out and jane is so like incredible to work with in that way. Cause her instinct, her trust of her instincts is something that I was like absolutely floored by, to be honest. Like it was, she, w- when she felt something, it was like, it was unwavering. And I, I think without that trust in, in, we, we've got it, you could easily take these things too far or, um, so it was, it was really about finding it and then knowing we had it because <laughs> it, it is really subtle and it's, you know, it's easy, be so easy to push it too far or, um, bring it back too too much.
0: I just want to make sure maybe I see a connection here. Um, you were talking about in the beginning about, um, the saddle and the rope and those inserts and, and the, and the need for them in listening to you describe what had to be removed from the, uh, Peter and Phil stuff. I, I do, I, I instantly gravitate towards um, towards those tactile things, the saddle, and, and, and in that sense that, like, maybe they're not physically tackling each other in connection and removing them. You, instead, I, f- I imagine, are they being replaced by that rope and that saddle and those inserts to a certain degree?
2: I think for us that that material was all about kind of getting into... Getting the sense that Phil isn't just one thing that he's 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 a guy who feels really deeply that he's a lover, even though he's kind of this really cruel so uh, a lot of that was kind of i think to just show how much how much feeling Phil had more than anything else how how sensitive he actually is and how yeah how complex he is and and how deeply he f- he feels the loss of the past and and um and then with Peter, how much kind of uh, with those rope moments, you know, they're really precise and really um, kind of soft in a way. Like, you know, some bits he pulls it really tight and stuff. We kind of used, we kind of had rope from different scenes, so we kind of would take, <laughs> take some rope from the early scene and put it later and just kind of get the right feeling for, um, for that moment. So we kind of like, it was a bit of a free-for-all with, with that kind of stuff, and even the close-up cigarette stuff, is is really just to kind of also get the audience into like a sense of touch and of sense that you know Phil doesn't hasn't touched another human in in that way for a really long time. So kind of he's kind of putting all that energy into into these objects around him. In that scene in the barn, yeah, we kind of we have that long panning mountain shot with all these really deep shadows, which was kind of a, a beautiful thing that Ari Wegner and her team, we just had like hours of beautiful um, scenery around Otago, around, um, I think it was. Uh, but then we kind of wanted to, to pull the audience in from, from, from a landscape into, you know, a really tactile um, before Pete walks in in a wide with a bucket so it was kind of really about just just drawing you into that space Uh, I mean a lot of this stuff is it's so so it's all in the subconscious in a way if you know what I mean it's like it's about building a mood and an atmosphere and and those those macros were so they just had a quality that we didn't we didn't have
0: listen i mean some of this is directing right is like finding these subtle actions that express externalize character i mean that's all but i mean what she does with these things is just the degree of what she's pulling out of these characters through just interactions with spaces and objects
2: yeah and and again going back to the instinctual thing it's kind of you know it's such a playful way of working with her you just kind of just finding you're just finding it you know nothing's in concrete we kind of there's so many so many things in the cut that weren't even mentioned in the script you know like all that the mountains and the horses after the after the barn when when they've had their moment cutting to the horses in bright sunlight um in a kind of abstract way that mirrors you know bodies and shapes and you know these um kind of yeah, I mean, it, there's there's no way of kind of uh, intellectualizing why it felt so great. That sequence came from a a reel we cut um, in between the COVID shoots, <laughs> in between the the COVID break. Jane asked me to cut a reel of everything we had shot so far to kind of get the crew excited about coming back to the shoot and you know get them back in the atmosphere of the movie. And I used a bunch of those horse shots that she I don't think she'd even seen at that stage because that was kind of second unit roaming while they were shooting another thing. So those shots came up and like Jane was like, wow, that's those shots need to be in the film.
0: You mentioned the landscape. Um, You know, Westerns are always telling stories through, you know, use of landscape. And um, it's some of the stuff that Jane and Ari did here is, is gorgeous and very powerful. But I think more importantly than how stunning it is, is, is that story element. And it's so strong, the choices that they're making in terms of the landscape, in terms of story. I'm wondering if you talk about that.
2: We actually had a real, like a very strict rule to never use it for, for beauty. I mean, the place just in general is so beautiful. The, you know, the setting, it's also like, you know, really isolating and, um, it kind of has a great effect with within the scenes but so we always tried to use it in a really uh in a way that kind of extended a feeling that we we would we had like the one there's there's a great one where the light just kind of dances on the on the top of a of the hills um after George and Rose have their picnic on the on the hill before they get to the ranch, and it's kind of it's kind of our one moment of real beauty, but it was also like watching the light fade away <laughs> on those mountains kind of gave you this sense of of foreboding when uh you know they were gonna arrive at you know and meet phil, so like the kind of the beauty was gonna be there for a little while, but it was um you know it was all gonna come crashing down when phil <laughs> when Phil got involved. So we kind of always, always used it for a kind of atmosphere and at and a moment for the audience to really sit with a feeling and, and have room for them to think. It's always about an extension of, of, of what had happened or, or something to come. Like it was, it was never just pretty. It was never just wallpaper or um, a great kind of postcard. The one before the before the final uh barn scene was perhaps our favourite in terms of just using landscape as a in a kinda of abstract way, kinda of sensual and the shapes of the hills and it's shot in a really interesting way where it's not wide, you're actually kind of in tight on the on the on the hill and you kinda of see all the detail, but then you also see these really dark shadows that kinda of hide so much and that was that was a shot that really stood out when we first started doing selects on our on our um, atmospheres and landscapes, and you know we had so much so much of that stuff
0: The big thing I wanted to get into before I let you go was also sound, um, but in particular, my understanding is Johnny Greenwood's score was something you had to work with, um, some tracks and and. And and I know this sounds like an odd thing, but to be honest, it doesn't seem unrelated to these other things that we're talking about. It's it's. I wonder if you talk about its use because it's very powerful, like the landscape. And in rewatching it, my gut was, it was. I was stunned how little of it was in there. Not to say it doesn't have. It, it almost felt like every time you used though that that melody in that track, it was just like boom.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We had about I think. I think it came in in maybe two or three deliveries at the very beginning, so we were we were working with the score that's in the in the film from the very start. I think we had about thirty thirty five tracks in different suites. there was kind of different flavors. There was a mechanical piano and uh one called the prelude then there was the band uh the celloer's guitar, which was the opening uh, yeah and we kind of treated. the 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 approach to the music was essentially the same as landscape in a way we listened to it all like in great detail and kind of made notes and and then we just started trying in places essentially it was kind of it was kind of like cutting scenes with like performance it was it was about suiting these incredible textures that johnny had given us and the incredible cues um to the right moments and and it was it was a very, very organic process. It was not, there's very few that we went, okay, that goes here and that goes there. It was It was a little bit of trial and error, but also just about a feeling um, that we could get. But yeah, they are very bold. Like the horn stuff especially is like really bold and um, it stands out. And it was also about building the music up because the final chapter of the film has so much more music and we always knew that was going to be the case we didn't want to overuse it before we got to the end and and so there was a lot of a lot of that there was a lot of restraint used and then like bringing it bringing it all home at the end with some some big big cues
0: (laughs) well thank you very much pleasure it's a wonderful film thanks for talking about it. thanks for the time just a reminder that today's podcast was brought to you by MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's No Time to Die, produced by Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, and directed by Kerry Fukunaga. Daniel Craig concludes his five-film portrayal of James Bond in No Time to Die. Joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents, Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. Critics are hailing No Time to Die will be remembered for its emotional impact above all. You can watch it everywhere you rent movies. It's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. I love this film, and actually, uh, next week we're going to have Carrie and uh, his DP Linus talking about it. So uh, it's really probably the best action film um, of the year. It's it's wonderful.